Well, welcome to the start of a new series called The Art of Being Unordinary. We're really glad you're here with us today. Thanks for joining us. If you're new, my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here, part of the teaching team. And we just wrapped up a series called Hello, My Name Is, all about relationships and learning about how to go deeper in relationships with each other. Really enjoyed that series, but I'm so excited for this one. It's called The Art of Being Unordinary, but really what it's all about is happiness. And everybody wants to be happy, right? I mean, you want to be happy, don't you? I assume you want to be happy. I don't hear any response to that, but I'm guessing that you probably want to be happy. You probably do things to be happy. You know, the Declaration of Independence uh, says that we have the right to pursue happiness, and pursue happiness we do. We try to get happy with all sorts of different things, right? If I could only get that new car, then I would be happy. If I could only have that new, bigger, better house, then I would be happy. If I only had that relationship with that, that guy or that girl, then I would be happy. If I just had more money, then I would finally be happy. And I don't have to tell you, you already know where this is going. Those things don't make us happy for very long. The people that win the lottery, the people that get the dream job, the dream car, all the different things that they want, they all say the same thing eventually, right? It didn't make me happy for very long. It was great for a while, and the happiness that the world has to offer us will make us happy for a while, but it's temporary. It's not lasting happiness. In this series, we're going to talk about the kind of people that Jesus says will be truly happy, truly happy and blessed Jesus took the cultural ideas about what, what mattered to God and what God valued and what would make you happy in life and, and the right things you were supposed to do, and he showed people that they were all flipped upside down. They were different than what they expected, very unusual, and he taught people the kind of person that would be truly happy and blessed by God. And the passage we're going to talk about today, and really for this whole series, is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It's the Sermon on the Mount passage, the beginning of that. This is a section called the Beatitudes. And we're actually gonna back it up a little bit. We're gonna start in Matthew chapter four. So you're welcome to turn there in your Bibles, but I'm gonna ask you to do something with me that's a little bit different. I'm gonna ask you actually to stand up with me and read this together with me. I'm gonna read parts and you're gonna read parts. So if you would go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read the verses in yellow, and if you will read back to me the verses in white, and I'll tell you, the early service did a great job with this. So no pressure, but I'm just telling you, they did a really great job with this. Matthew chapter four, we're gonna start in verse 18. We'll put it on the screen for you. I will read yellow, you read white. One day, as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, also called Peter, and Andrew throwing a net into the water, for they fished for a living. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets, and he called them to come too. Jesus traveled throughout the region of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom, and he healed every kind of disease and illness. The 
have to pause for a minute and confess. I gave you that one on purpose. That was a tough one. With the possessed and epileptic and paralyzed, you did great. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the 10 towns, Jerusalem, from all over Judea and from east of the Jordan River. One day as he saw the crowds gathering, Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples gathered around him and he began to teach them. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God bless you when people mock you and persecute you. And one more for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for communicating to us these truths about how you want us to live and the types of people you want us to be. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn from it today in in ways that are very unordinary and things that are countercultural to us that in some cases are counterintuitive. Help us to understand what you were teaching your disciples 2,000 years ago and how it is still so relevant and applicable to us today. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Be happy about it. Be very glad. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry right here. Not the very, very beginning, but it's it's right at the start. It's at the foundation of everything. There are no 12 apostles yet. It's just Jesus and a few disciples who have gathered around him. And they're not even all that serious yet in Matthew chapter 4. And if you think about it, those last few verses of Matthew 4 were... Jesus is calling Peter and Andrew and James and John. It sounds kind of crazy that you would leave your fishing businesses, which all of them had, and just follow this man that you've never met before. Doesn't that sound crazy to you? And it is crazy because it's not what happened. These men already knew Jesus. In fact, they had already been followers of his, just not full-time. They were part-time followers of Jesus. We know this because in John chapter one, we find out that uh, Andrew and probably John as well, there's an unnamed disciple who follows Jesus, but it almost certainly was John. So Andrew and John are followers, disciples of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus, he gives him his endorsement. And these two guys leave John the Baptist to follow the new guy. We know from the Bible that Andrew roped in his brother, Simon, Peter, and probably John went and recruited James. So these are four guys that were probably with Jesus at this point and just sort of following him as a disciple, but more of a casual disciple. You know, they were, they were interested, but they still had their fishing businesses. They still had to go earn a living. They weren't into this full time yet. They were probably with him at the wedding in Cana. They probably saw the miracle of the water turning into wine. 
So when Jesus shows up and invites these four guys to join him, he's not showing up out of the blue and just saying, drop everything and follow a guy you've never met. They're making an educated, informed decision. They've already spent time with him. They already know that he's worth following. They're just taking the next step in that journey. In fact, they even had the reference check of John the Baptist, who they really trusted. And so they started to follow Jesus, and Jesus started to assemble his disciples who were going to be with him all the time. And he gathered these disciples around him. They were his target audience. Jesus cared about the crowds. He loved the people. He taught the people. But he was here for his disciples. His movement, the continuation of his teaching, depended on these disciples. He would teach them, and they would teach others, and pass this on and carry it down to you and me. So everything hinged on these disciples that he was bringing to himself. This right here in Matthew 4 and 5, this is getting in on the ground floor, the early stages of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had performed some miracles already. He had turned water into wine. He had cast out some demons. He had healed some sick people. But nothing compared to what he would do later. They had no idea that this is God in the flesh. They had no idea that he would die and come back to life later on. They had no idea the kinds of miracles that they would see down the road as they followed him in ministry. As far as they were concerned, this was an itinerant rabbi, which wasn't all that uncommon. There were lots of rabbis, teachers that would travel around and people were disciples of theirs. You didn't have uh, TV or internet, you didn't have YouTube. If you wanted to subscribe to someone's YouTube channel back then, you became their disciple. And you, you followed them around. That's how, that's how you did it. If there's someone that you wanted to learn from, you literally had to go spend time with them. I know that's a crazy thought, but it's just what you had to do back then. And so this was their version of social media. It was literally social, and the media was you sat there and you listened to them teach, and you got whatever it was they were teaching. So that wasn't that unusual. What was so unusual about Jesus was the content of his teaching. It was radically different than what everybody else was teaching. And especially if you were to listen to the priests or the scribes or the Pharisees, you are getting very different content than if you were listening to Jesus. And, and you see that throughout the Gospels. People would marvel at his teaching because it was so different and it was so powerful. And we're going to get a, a first glimpse of that today. Jesus would teach and launch a movement that would turn the tables on the cultural expectations about what God wants from us. The common understanding of how God wanted people to live and respond to him and obey him and follow him and what God valued and what he appreciated and what honored God, the common thoughts on that were so very different from what Jesus was gonna share with them. He was gonna show them that their ideas about serving God were just flipped all upside down. A lot of Jesus' teaching, including, I think, this sermon here in Matthew 5 through 7, are things that they would not understand until much later. It was, it was hard to understand because it was so different than what they were used to hearing. It, it seemed counterintuitive, and so they wouldn't understand it in many cases till much, much later when Jesus would unpack it with stories and parables. And, and everything we see in these first few verses of Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, all of that you find later in Jesus' teaching. In fact, you could almost view this section as a summary for all of Jesus' teaching later on. Like each piece of his teaching, you can sort of put back under one of the Beatitudes and say, yeah, that's part of that whole thing. But it was very counterintuitive. It was very different than what they were used to. How many of you have ever tried water skiing? Anybody? You've tried to water ski? Okay. 
How many of you have then successfully water skied after you tried? Okay, almost as many hands. You know, when you're water skiing, the goal is to stay on top of the water and move forward. That's pretty basic. But how do you start to water ski? Sit down and lean back, right? If you want to get up and move forward, you have to sit down in the water, bend your knees, and you have to lean back. You have to let the boat do the work. You can't try to push yourself up above the water. And what's way better than learning to water ski is watching other people learning to water ski. That is so much more fun. Because they have to sit down and lean back and let themselves rest in the water and let the boat do the work. And what do they want to do? Try to help themselves up. And as soon as they do, they kind of get up and they lean forward and splat, face plant right in the water. It makes for some hilarious moments. What they need to do is counterintuitive. They need to sit down and lean back and let the boat do the work and pull them up out of the water and just kind of, kind of chill back there. But it's so hard to do to let the boat do the work. It's kind of like Jesus teaching here. This is counterintuitive. This is not what you would expect. It's not what you would think at first. But once you understand it, looking back, it makes so much sense. A lot of what Jesus is going to say in this whole sermon, we're not going to look at the whole thing in this series. We're just going to do the Beatitudes. There's plenty there. But a lot of what Jesus is going to say is counterintuitive. It's different than what they've heard. And he actually explains that pretty well. In verse 21 of Matthew 5, we read this. You have heard that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. So you have heard that. You know that. That's common knowledge. You must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. It's a different standard, a different principle, one that God already has, but they're not following They thought that as long as I don't do the bad thing, I just think about the bad thing, then I'm fine. And Jesus is saying, no, this is internal too. This is not just the externals. A few verses later, he says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, what you think God wants you to do is not what God cares about the most. The externals, making sure that we look like we're spiritual, that we look like we're religious, that we look like we have our act together. That's not what God cares about the most. What he cares about is what's in the heart. All of the religious leaders at this time were teaching and cared about the externals. Make sure you do this. Make sure you don't do this. Lots and lots of rules and regulations. And yet Jesus' teaching is God cares about what's inside. So what he's teaching them and what he's going to teach them throughout his ministry is the art of being unordinary. Hey, that's the title of the series. You like how I worked that in there? The art of being unordinary. So Jesus in Matthew 5 at the beginning, he takes his disciples up this hill. It's a beautiful hill. If you go there today, we were just there at the beginning of this year with our team that went to Israel. There's a beautiful church on there and you can see where you could be at the top of the hill and there's this sort of a slope down right to the Sea of Galilee. And you're just looking out over the Sea of Galilee. You could not imagine a more beautiful place to do some teaching. It's absolutely gorgeous. And and we plan to go back there early next year with, with some people from here. And I can't wait to get back. It's just incredible. And Jesus goes up this hill. I can kind of see it in my mind right now. And the crowds are down below, but his disciples follow him up to the top. And so they're somewhere further up the hill gathered around him because this is Jesus' target audience here. He wants to teach his disciples So he pulls them away and they all sit down and he starts to teach them. And basically how you need to look at this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is not as a teaching that's given to everybody. 
It's not meant for the crowds. This is meant for his disciples. That's why he pulled them away. Some of the crowds certainly overheard what he was teaching, but this was teaching for his disciples, his relatively new disciples. In fact, how you can look at this is as an orientation. This is like new discipleship orientation. Have you ever been part of an orientation class? for college or, or for a new job, you know? There's always orientation you have to go through. And sometimes it's a class that you sit in and they, they're supposed to do two things. Orientation is supposed to do two things for you. The first thing is it's supposed to clarify expectations. What can you expect working here or going to school here? What can you expect being a part of this team? What are our expectations of you? The first thing an orientation does is clarify expectations. The second thing an orientation does is explain the rules. What are the things you have to know, the things you have to follow? What are the rules for you to follow here? And that's basically what Jesus is doing in this Sermon on the Mount. He's giving them as part of this new discipleship orientation, here are the expectations for you. Here's what you can expect to become as a part of my discipleship program. Here are the rules that I expect you to follow as a part of this. And it may be different than what you've heard before. But here are all of the expectations for you. How is this going to be different from what you're used to? And so the beginning of this message that Jesus gives includes these eight character traits that we call the Beatitudes. Eight character traits that really summarize the rest of his teaching. God blesses those who are poor in spirit or poor and realize their need for him. God blesses those who mourn. God blesses those who are humble. Bless blesses, blessed are, depending on your version, you'll get a different version of that. We call these the Beatitudes because it comes from the Latin word for blessed. And blessed is a word that's challenging for us to understand today because the word blessed has kind of been used in a lot of different ways, especially recently. You know, our language changes and evolves over time. And so words that would have been perfect for translating this 100 years ago may not be the right words to translate it today. We, we don't always have words that translate it that well today. So we've got to figure out what this word blessed means. Unfortunately, the New York Times says that the overuse of the word blessed has all but stripped it of its meaning. And I think that's true because it seems like everything you see out there today is hashtag blessed. Doesn't matter what it is, all kinds of stuff can be blessed you can be landscaping blessed. You can be fitness blessed. There's a whole lot of fitness blessed out there. You can be wine blessed, which Jesus actually probably would have approved of. You can be nails blessed. You can be leg day blessed. Blessed legs, I guess. You can be turtle in a diaper blessed. You can be green lights blessed. I like that one for a few reasons. You can be Chick-fil-A blessed, which is totally legitimate. That one's actually the correct use of the word. What did the word blessed mean when Jesus used it? Well, the problem is Jesus didn't really use that word. Jesus was probably speaking in Hebrew. And there are two words in Hebrew that he could have used for what we translate as blessed. And Matthew was writing it down in Greek. And there are two Greek words that correspond with those Hebrew words. And then we're reading this in English and all sorts of different translations have been proposed about how to handle this word blessed. Now the, the words in Greek that Matthew could have used are eulogeo and makarios. And eulogeo is the kind of word that means like an active blessing, like, um, like if I were to pray that God blesses you, God would you please bless them? 
that person. God, would you bless the poor? Whatever that is, that's, that's that kind of eulogia word. The other word that Matthew uses is makarios. And makarios, um, it, it really, it kind of means happy. It means joyful. But even our words for happy and joy have kind of become diluted. And so it's more this idea of a, a fortunate blessing, a blessing from God. A divine happiness that God gives us. Privileged, fortunate are other words that we could use there. So another way to translate the Beatitudes would be like this. How fortunate are the poor in spirit, for they have received the kingdom of heaven. And even that doesn't quite do it justice. So here's one that maybe is even better. Oh, how God has made happy the mourners, for they will be comforted. It's the idea that that this is happiness But it's not just I'm happy for a moment. This is God-given, divine, fortunate, privileged, happiness, joy that I have. Not just fleeting for a moment, but I am truly, genuinely happy right now. That's the kind of blessed that we're talking about in Matthew chapter five. It's important to understand that as Jesus is talking here, he's not giving promises. He's not saying, if you do this, you will be blessed and happy. He's not saying if you can achieve this in your life, then God will bless you or make you happy. That's not the structure that he uses. These are factual statements. What he's actually saying is, here is the type of person who is blessed by God and happy, and here's how they're blessed, and here's why they can be happy. It's not about trying to achieve these things. It's about the type of people with these character traits who are happy because God gives them happiness and explaining why. In other words, we could think of it this way. Jesus is giving them a snapshot of what his discipleship program will produce. He's clarifying expectations. He's sharing what is going to happen to them as they go through his ministry and his teaching and surrender to his teaching in their life and follow it and commit themselves to it. The type of person he's going to produce, the type of person who will be a citizen of God's kingdom is gonna be very different than what the world expects. And these are people that will be truly happy and blessed. We're going to see a lot about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God in these verses. And they believed in the kingdom of God. They believed in it very strongly, but they believed based on everything they saw in the Old Testament that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God was going to be a new Jewish state and that the Messiah would come and he would overthrow Rome and they would finally have independence again and they would have their own state set up. That was what the kingdom of God was like to them, a a physical, literal kingdom that would overthrow all of their oppressors and they would be established there and that's what the kingdom of God was. And so they had their own thoughts about who are the types of people that would get to be a part of this kingdom and would have prominent positions in this kingdom. And of course, it was gonna be the religious people. It was gonna be the spiritual elites. It was gonna be the priests and the Levites and the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the people that certainly would have a place in the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. These are the people that had things all figured out. They were the ones that were closest to God. At least they looked that way. And what Jesus is telling them here in a radically new teaching to them is that's not the type of person God wants in his kingdom. He's not looking for people who feel they have it all figured out. He's not looking for people that have mastered all of the externals of religious expression. That's not the kind of disciple that will come out of Jesus' ministry. So he tells them, blessed are the poor who realize their need for God, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
He says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who are humble for they will inherit not just the kingdom but the whole earth. This is different. This is strange teaching. This is new. And it's not a checklist for good behavior. These aren't promises of if you try to achieve this, then this will happen to you. It's, it's new teaching about the kind of person that God wants in his kingdom, the kind of disciple that Jesus is going to produce. The only thing is it actually wasn't all that new. They just forgot about it. Over hundreds of years, they forgot about what God had actually told them he valued. And you find this all over the Old Testament. God didn't just give them rules and regulations. He told them in Isaiah 66, I will bless those who have humble and contrite hearts, who tremble at my word. You see, God has been telling them all along, I don't just care about the externals. Yes, I want you to live properly, and mostly that's so that you don't face the consequences for some of these things. I want you to live properly, but what I care about is inside. I care about your heart. I care about the motivation, the contrite heart, the humble heart. That's what God wants from you. It's all over the Old Testament. So that's the foundation for Jesus' teaching here. It's new and it's different because they forgot what God really wanted them to be. The first beatitude that he gives them is blessed are the poor who realize their need for God. That's one way to translate it. Other versions translate it, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this mean, the poor in spirit? He's not talking about people who are materially poor. He's talking about people who are spiritually poor. Not people who don't have a lot of money or financial resources. He's talking about people who don't have a lot of spiritual resources. It's people who can't bring anything to the table to do business with God. People who don't have anything they can bring of value to God and say, here God, I deserve to be in your kingdom. I deserve to be with you. I deserve to get into heaven. People who don't have any of that. The word that's used here is the, the, for poor is the word for beggar. You could translate this, blessed are the spiritual beggars. They have nothing that they can bring with them. It is absolute destitute spiritual poverty. These are the people who realize they cannot do enough good on their own to earn favor with God. You see all those other religious people all over the place back in this day who who acted like they had everything figured out and that they had earned God's favor and that they were doing the right things on the external and Jesus is telling them, that is not the way. Those are not the people who will be in my kingdom. This is gonna be different. His teaching was radically different. So different, in fact, that they often didn't understand it at first. There are many times you see throughout the gospels that the disciples walk away confused and bewildered and wondering, what did Jesus mean by that? And I would bet that a lot of what he shares in Matthew chapter five, they walked away that day and went, huh? Poor, in spirit, humble, mourn? Like, what is he talking about? And it's not until you get later in Jesus' ministry that you see a lot of these things unpacked. All of his stories, his parables, all point back to these beatitudes. They all explain what he means here. And so we're actually gonna look at one of those right now. It's in Luke chapter 18, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. Jesus tells a story that explains exactly what he means when he says, poor in spirit, or poor who realize their need for God. Luke chapter 18, and verse 9. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. 
So these are people who thought they had it all figured out. They knew the way to live. They knew the way to behave. And they wanted to look the part. And they compared themselves to everyone else. So I am this great, wonderful, spiritual person. And I have this position. And I wear the right things. And I say the right things. And I listen to the right kind of music. And I do all of this. And boy, that person over there, man, they don't have it figured out. And I think maybe God grades on a curve. So even though, you know, I've done some bad things in my life, but all of this good surely outweighs the bad. And on top of that, I'm so much better than that person. So certainly, God is going to have a place in his kingdom for me. And that's the person that's going to get cut out. Those are the people that Jesus is talking to. And he tells them this story. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. And the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people. Cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give you a tenth of my income. My, how amazing I am. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Jesus said, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit who realize their need for God. Two very different people, two very different approaches to God. The Pharisee is a religious man and very religious. The deal with the Pharisees was that they wanted to take the regulations that were really meant for the priests and the temple and the Levites and they wanted to apply those regulations to common everyday people. And so they took rules that were not meant for everyone and tried to apply them to everyone so that they could be extra spiritual. And they had some good reasons for that. They wanted to make sure that God would never judge Israel again. And so they thought, well, if we can really clamp down on people and make sure that they're really super spiritual and religious in everything they do, then surely that will be enough for God. And in doing so, they missed the whole point because they made it all about the externals. It was all about how you looked on the outside, not at all about your heart that God really cares about. That's why Jesus' teaching is so radically different. But the Pharisee compares himself to other people and says, look at that guy, that tax collector. I am so much better than him. In fact, he even puts it into spiritual terms. Thank you, God, that I'm so wonderful. Isn't that a disingenuous prayer? Isn't that a horrible way to say thank you? Thank you that I'm so great. Thank you that I've got this all figured out. I'm so much better than that guy. He compares himself to other people. And it's on that basis that he thinks he's accepted by God. Then on the other side, you have this tax collector. A man who was despised even more than the Romans. The Romans came in and conquered and oppressed the Jewish people. But then they needed people to be able to to collect taxes from the Jewish people. And the way the Romans had figured out to do this, they needed some people on the inside who were there who kind of could do the audits and could inspect and know that people were paying paying fair taxes. And so they found some unscrupulous people of whoever they conquered and they made them their tax collectors. The Jewish people hated the Romans, 
but they absolutely despised the tax collectors. The Romans were outside people who came in and oppressed, but the tax collectors were often Jewish people who had turned on their neighbors. And so tax collectors ended up being very wealthy and very alone, except for other tax collectors and and sinners. The only reason you became a tax collector was if you wanted to cheat other people. That's how they made most of their money. And so the Romans would set a tax rate here, but the tax collectors would then bump that tax rate up and pocket the difference. And they became very wealthy off of that. So the people despised tax collectors. And this is a man who had lived his, probably his whole adult life cheating his fellow people, robbing from them. He was a sinner. He was a rotten man. But the thing is, he knew it. And at some point, he has this epiphany where he realizes, wow, I am not living my life the right way. I'm doing these horrible things. I'm a sinner. I'm a rotten person. And he has this moment, kind of a Zacchaeus moment, where he realizes, okay, I cannot keep living this way. And so probably for the first time in a long time, he makes his way to the temple steps. And he doesn't even look up at heaven. He just bows his head and he beats his chest in really genuine sorrow. And he says, oh God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, that is the man who is justified. That's the type of person who God wants. The Pharisee was rich in spirit. The Pharisee was rich spiritually, or at least he thought he was. But the tax collector had just become poor in spirit. He had just realized how lowly he was, what a sinner he was, and so he came to God with nothing in his arms, nothing in his spiritual basket, nothing to be able to say, all right, God, here's all that I've done. Is that good enough? He came and just threw himself on the mercy of God as a spiritual beggar and said, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to bring to the table. All I can do is ask for your forgiveness and your mercy. Not because he had earned God's salvation, but because he knew he couldn't earn it. Not because he had done anything that would merit God's forgiveness, but because he was just asking God to forgive him and begging him for mercy. So Jesus, at the very beginning of his discipleship program, is telling them what he is going to produce, what he expects, what's going to be developed if you follow Jesus, if you surrender to his teaching. Poverty of spirit a realization that you do not have anything you can bring to God that's of value to him so he would want to accept you, so he would want to be in a relationship with you, so he would forgive you, because there's nothing that you can do to earn that. What God wants is poverty of spirit, spiritual poverty, the recognition that is all him and none of us. This is where following Jesus starts. This is clarifying the expectations and explaining the rules. This is how God's kingdom is going to work. And it's just as relevant to us today as it was to them back then. Because for many of us here in this room, watching online, certainly in our community, there are people who feel like if they just do enough good, then that's somehow going to be worth it to God and he's going to overlook their bad and it's going to kind of go on these scales and the one scales for the good stuff and the one scales for the bad stuff. And as long as the good stuff outweighs the bad, then I'm going to be okay. And Jesus is saying, even the scale of the good stuff, it's worthless. Absolute spiritual poverty. But maybe God grades on a curve. 
And maybe if I do better than some of these other people, there's like a certain percentage that he'll accept. And so the people below this line, as long as I make sure there's enough people that are below me on that scale, then I'll be okay. It's kind of like if you're with someone else and you need to escape a bear, as long as you run faster than the other person, you're good. That's how people look at acceptance by God. Well, as long as I'm better than that person, then God will accept me. And Jesus is saying, it's not how it works. Absolute spiritual poverty. There's nothing you bring to the table. There's nothing you supply in this equation. It is all a work of God in your life. All you can do is come to him and beg for mercy and say, I'm a sinner and I bring nothing with me that's of any value to you. In fact, the only reason I even have value is because you love me and that's what gives me value. There's nothing I can do. It's all you. God, would you please forgive me? Have mercy on me. And so whatever state you are in today, whatever your view is of how God's going to accept you, you have an opportunity to come to God just like the tax collector. Part of the the lesson of this story is that it doesn't matter how bad you have been. The tax collector was a man who for decades had lived a horrible life a life as a sinner, a life where he was cheating other people. He was just robbing people left and right to amass his own wealth and income. This was a rotten, filthy guy. This was a guy who we would say, lock him up and throw away the key. That's the man who came to God and repented and said, I've got nothing. And Jesus says, he went away justified. It doesn't matter what you've done in your life. It doesn't matter what the past is when it comes to God forgiving you because he'll forgive anybody even this tax collector. I'm gonna ask you if you would to just bow your heads with me for a moment. Close your eyes, bow your heads if you want to. I just wanna speak to those of you who maybe have never done what the tax collector did, never came to God in a moment like this and said, Lord, I've got nothing. I've been relying on my own good deeds, my own strength. I've been thinking that maybe I'll be better than other people so you'll accept me. I haven't really trusted in you alone. I've still been holding on to some things that I could do to maybe, maybe if I go to church enough, maybe if I give, maybe if I'm good to my neighbors, but I haven't come as a spiritual beggar to say, God, there's nothing I bring to this table. So if that's you today, I'm gonna invite you to come to God right now in your heart and in your mind. And you don't have to say these words, but you can say something like this. You can say, God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've done wrong in my life. I've been doing wrong for a long time. And even the times when I thought I was doing good, a lot of that was just my own selfishness, my own ego, my own pride. And Lord, I I know that I have nothing to bring to you. There's nothing I can do that would cause you to accept me or earn your favor. And so I just throw myself onto your mercy. I beg you for your forgiveness, Lord, for my sin, for the wrong that I have done. And I want you to come into my life and I want you to cleanse me. Purify my heart. Give me a new life. Help me to live differently, to live for you, to live like Jesus said. I bring nothing to this other than a belief in what Jesus did for me when he died and paid the penalty for my sin so that I can have a relationship with you. Keep your heads bowed if you would, your eyes closed. I don't know if there's anybody here that needed that today. 
If that's you and you'd like me to pray for you, no one's looking around, you can raise your hand and I'll know that, that you trusted in Jesus today, that you came to Jesus like the tax collector and I will pray for you. Just raise your hand and that way I will know to pray for you. And if you did that just now, we're gonna have a prayer team up here at the end of the service and my, my advice to you is to seek one of us out. I'll be in the lobby, we'll have a prayer team up here at the front. Come and see one of us and let us know that you came to Jesus like that today. Understanding that there's nothing you bring and that it's all of God working in you. We want to give you the next steps in discipleship and help you to learn more about what Jesus said. It means to follow after him. Lord, I thank you for your word and what it teaches us. God, I thank you for the message of the gospel and the truth of salvation and what you did for us by paying our penalty so that we could have this relationship with you that absolutely changes our lives. I thank you for the people in this room that many of them have done that a long time ago. But we need reminders. We need reminders that it is not our working real hard that you want, it's our heart. And you change us from the inside out as we surrender to you. Help us to live out this truth not just the day that we first trust in you, but every day afterward, remembering that it's all of you and not of us, surrendering to you so that you can work in our life. Help us to remember that we are always poor in spirit, poor and in need of you, and to live in that truth every single day. And in your name I pray, amen.